Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And this is our review of The Killing, starring Sterling Hayden, Elisha Cook Jr., Marie Windsor, Vince Edwards, Joe Sawyer, Timothy Carey, Ted DeCorsia, J.C. Flippin, and Colleen Gray. Directed by Stanley Kubert, released in 1956 on a budget of $320,000, failed to be a hit with audiences, struggled to get distribution in its day, however, met with a lot of great critical acclaim over the years. Kurt, we are starting our Stanley Kubert retrospective with this 1956 entry, even though it's technically not his first directorial effort. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick is on the Mount Rushmore of filmmakers. Even if you don't like him, you have to acknowledge what he did for cinema. Even if 2001 was the only movie he did, that would earn him a, a spot on the mountain with guys like Hitchcock, Spielberg, or you know, going all the way back to guys like D.W. Griffith. I'd argue he's like, I'd argue he's the most influential filmmaker of the 20th century. Some might argue that, but I think. Uh, there's so few directors that have a foot in every genre where you watch a particular genre of film and inadvertently you're reminded of a Kubrick film. Like Hitchcock might have the whole thriller genre tied up, but Kubrick has, you know, science fiction, Vietnam, World War One, horror, uh, the Cold War and so forth. And he is uh, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, however, <laughs> uh, his first movie, Fear and Desire. Uh yeah, we're not really going deep into his first two movies because we both watched them. We both agreed. We both agreed there's not really uh, enough to go into with like full bore podcasts. <laughs> no, because they're because they are. I mean, Kubrick's first movie. Uh, it's weird saying he's the, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, and yet his first movie really sucked. Uh, <laughs> like, genuinely, not just like as mediocre. It's like you know, it's like. Not a whole lot to say there, but it is kind of sad about Kubrick's first movie, but it really is not very good at all. It's very boring, poorly acted, and written. And I couldn't really tell you what the the plot of the, of this uh, what the story was. Like, I guess it was him trying to make like a, you know, the movie didn't exist yet, but like a thin red line sort of art war movie. But it just kind of sucks. There's way more. <laughs> Amateur, there are, are way more amateurish directorial debuts that are actually better films. Like I would count, you know, Kevin Smith's Clerks or the first Paranormal Activity movie, which were made for 50 cents. I can't, I can't believe you just put Paranormal Activity, Solon Perry, <laughs> in the same. You know, look, I love the Paranormal movies, but man, that's I didn't think we were going to do that today. <laughs> well, just like just saying how, you know, someone was so with such a small amount of money, I didn't see what the budget is on Fear and Desire, but I'm betting it was more than than that. I mean, the paranormal activity costs way less than Fear and Desire, and yeah, Fear and True. Desire just just it's just kind of lame, you know. The good thing is though that Kubrick feels the same way as I understand it. He totally disowned the movie uh, when he made it big, and he tried to destroy every copy uh, that he could. Very Star Wars holiday special uh, in a way. And it, the movie comes off as a, like a bad 
film student thesis kind of movie. It's very throwaway, but even, but even Kubrick agrees with that. I think that's that's a good way to sum up those first two efforts. They're both like film student expressions. They were test runs of what were to come to be better ideas. And I would even argue with you that this one, in a lot of ways, while we're going to talk about maybe what it's influenced and things like that, there's really not a lot special about this particular picture. It's actually really simple. And maybe that's why it was chosen as the subject matter, because it wasn't something that you know, took uh, in, immense amounts of research. I mean, there's, there's podcasts dedicated to the kind of research Kubrick would do. Our friends over at the Hollywood Saloon did that. Hollywood Gauntlets talked about it too. You can listen to those things. We're not going to try to get into those things. What I wanted to do with a with a Kubrick retrospective was to take the the ten feature films we've got from The Killing through Eyes Wide Shut and just go through them in a year. And you put him on the Mount Rushmore of, of filmmakers, and I'm I, I certainly would agree with you that he goes there. But I want to see how one of these things just stack up just as pieces of entertainment. You know, what do they work? What works about them? What doesn't work about them? And are they worth going back to revisit? Because Kurt, you're, you would be on the younger end of the demographic of people that listen to our show. And, and certainly we've got listeners even younger than you out there. And then we've got listeners, you know, older than me, which if you ask Nick is really old. Uh, so I, I want to see what, what group these films are for and if they indeed do work for all uh, of these areas. And what is there about Kubrick that, is so enticing to a film and also maybe get into some thoughts about why indeed we only have such a limited bit of volume from him. I mean, he, he really didn't churn out, you know, I mean, Spielberg's got, you know, oodles of a film for us to chew through when he's gone, you know, right. And talk about you, I could even tell you there's three or four different eras of Spielberg. And then if you lump in all the producing credit that he's got, that's a whole other set of genre right there. Right. But Kubrick really limited himself to the things he was most interested in. And I think you've hit on one of the big ones. There was war. Um, I would also say now from the upfront, one of the things we're really going to learn about Stanley Kubrick in these next 10 films is he is fascinated by the psychology of men. I don't think he cares at all for the psychology of women. If he does, he never really explores it in, in his films from what memory I have of having seen most of these. There's a few I haven't seen, but I've seen most of them. And particularly in this, these first two that we're going to do, we're doing this one and then the Kirk, uh, Douglas film Paths of Glory will be our second one in the retrospective here. And I think Kubrick's fascination with the psychology of men and what men do and what makes them tick and what makes them want to do what they do and all that is something that drove him uh, through his entire life. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, I would. And definitely thinking, like, yeah, I haven't seen every Kubrick movie. This series, I'm going to be watching one or two that I haven't seen before. But definitely, when I look at the films I've, as I've seen, he is definitely fascinated with. Uh, I never thought of it as specifically the male psyche, but I definitely, but that is definitely the case. But definitely, just the so many of his movies are about just the the darkest uh, re reaches of the mind, uh, yeah, and about the darkest urges of people. And for the most part, it's all centered around uh, around violence and you know uh, violence, uh, all different extremes of violence, whether it's you know sexual violence in clockwork horns or or axe violence in, <laughs> in uh, the shining or you know uh, full metal jacket and, yeah 
I mean, we should tell everybody the 10 films we're going to do. It's, it, and they're in this order. The Killing, Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. Those are the, the feature films we're going to recover throughout 2017 as part of this retrospective. And we're going to go through them in, in order. And I think one of the cool things for me that will be to catch up on is, one, the recurring players that happened in his films, because they do change. Uh, over time, but also that you know, we've got one film in here in particular that's uh, had a remake and another one that's had a sequel um, that he wasn't involved in. And so we we won't review those per se, but we'll we'll get to talk about them. And The Shining will be a new thing for me because I've never in all the years of doing this podcast, I've never reviewed something twice and released it twice. So having done The Shining with Nick years ago as part of the Stephen King retrospective, I'm going to be watching it for the directorial side this time and see how it, it looks just through that lens because we spent so much time on that podcast just really talking about the characters and the story because it was a Stephen King retrospective. Now this time it's it's Stanley's time, but we're a long way away from The Shining. We got to get through some heist stuff first, man. And I got to tell you, heist films to me are something that we don't get enough of. Or if when we do, we get a lot of the same thing just told over and over again. There seems to be a good one that comes out every five to six, seven years, and then you get like fifty clones of it. And I, I don't know what it is about this that's so fascinating to me. I guess it's because I'm not a criminal and have never had any aspirations to be one. But the good heist films to me, things like Thief and Heat and Collateral and, uh, you know, you can even go into stuff that's a little lower rent, but like the score and you know things like that. I think the thing that, that really makes me like them is all the intricacies of it and how needed is to watch these people plan this thing out and then execute it. And, you know, in the 1950s, heist movies, noir films, this is the heyday of noir films, the 1940s and 50s. So why not do a noir film? Oh, yeah. I'm, I've always been a fan of uh, of the good heist films. And, like, you know, you're watching a good one when you're, you're feeling anxiety about uh, the, the crime at hand. Because uh, heist films... When it's about stealing something, it's a little easier to get involved in when it's not centered around, you know, killing people. Yeah. It's about just about stealing, you know, you know, money. There is just a, it's like, it's like almost like watching a game show or something. You, you, like, even if you have nothing to do with it, you, you kind of, you want the players to, uh, succeed or, or fail, whatever the case may be. But like, you know, when you think of, like, definitely in this movie, there's, there's tons of moments. There's, like, towards the end of the movie, like, uh, you know, the anxiety I feel towards the end of this movie with regards to just the getting away with the money. It's almost the same. It's almost more than anxiety. I feel than you know watching uh, a war movie or a horror movie, and, and I don't <laughs> know why that is, but you know. Well, it's because you're dealing with something that's very physical. In a horror film, you're usually dealing with the supernatural in some way, right? And in a war film, unless you've been in war, it's hard to relate to that at all. But you can relate to the idea of being in a bank and trying to get out before the alarm hits because we've all tried to finish the test before the bell rings. You know, or, or we've all done that deadline in a place that we can go to. You and I right now can walk down the street and go into a Bank of America. 
you know, and see what that looks like. You know, we can, you can go travel to Hollywood and go see the places where the North Hollywood shootout took out if you want to. I'm sure the bank would like for you not to loiter, but you can go check that out if you want to. You know, that those things exist. It's hard to go where, you know, Jason murdered people because those were shot in a lot of different places. <laughs> if you're ever in Alabama, I can take you to one of them, by the way. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I know that one. And, and it's hard to go where, you know, war movies take place. You can go visit Normandy and things like that, but it doesn't look like it did in 1940s, you know. So I think this is because it, it allows us to avatar into a world that we don't usually get into. And, you know, noir films were, were always told from the, the point of view, or not always, but they were generally told from the point of view of the bad guys, right? The criminals who we were supposed to somehow or another relate with and, and root for. Uh, you know, we talked about that when we reviewed Heat back with Ron a couple of years ago, that one of the neatest things about that film is that you can really choose the cops or the robbers and you can appreciate both of them because they're both, both sets of them are incredibly good at their job. And all the procedures that they go through. And that's one thing that Michael Mann really laid out. And I even saw a little bit of that in this with Kubrick and, and the, the amount of time that was spent on the planning part of it and the, the details and things like that. Because I mean, this movie is not, it's not really extravagant. There's not a lot of big sets. There's almost, you know, very few visual effects. There's none of the Kubrick camera work that maybe you would come to know and appreciate from anything that's coming up. I mean, just rattling off that next list of films we're going to be doing, this looks nothing like any of them. So what I'm going to be trying to get out of this is what are the story elements that I think I might see a repeat of somewhere down the line. And then again, like I said at the beginning, is this even worth it? This, you know, this movie is 1956. We're talking about something that's 61 years old as we record it. And, you know, my eternal question is, is it worth the trip going back to? Oh, well, I think it is. This is, uh, like, I think the, the, like, one of the, like, if I were going to give this movie a tagline, it would be like, now we're talking as opposed to, when I'm talking about Kubrick movies, because it was first movies, Fear and Desire, and uh, Killer's Kiss, Kiss, yeah, which you know is uh, not a very great film when it's tacked on as a special feature on another movie's Blu-ray. <laughs> it's literally a sticker saying also included Kubrick's film, uh, The Killer's Kiss. But but this is this movie is is Kubrick's uh, real first movie, kind of like how. Alien 3 doesn't count. 7 is Fincher's real first movie. His first <laughs> genuinely good movie. And again, much like with Killer's Kiss, this like it's a very staple kind of crime movie plot. Uh, in this case, you know, just guy wants to rob a racetrack. That doesn't really get much uh, deeper than that. And the movie is a very classical, old-school, noir crime movie. One of those... It's one of those older movies where no one in it looks like they're under forty, even if <laughs> even if they are. That's just the way it was with with none 50s. of the men, at least. Yeah, definitely. And and I first saw this movie probably two thousand eight or so. I bought it and Paths of Glory on DVD at the same time, and I watched them just to tick off some some Kubrick movies. Uh, and I enjoyed the the killing a lot. There's a great cast in this. Everyone everyone in this movie, the, the guys certainly. Uh, have that grizzled or crazy character actor look to them. Like Sterling Hayden, for instance, uh, a critic, uh, Chris Gore, he said this about Lawrence Tierney, who was Joe in Reservoir Dogs, and it applies here. Like, you look at Sterling Hayden or any of the guys in this movie, and you realize they just they don't make faces like that anymore. No, no they don't. Sterling Hayden's from a bygone era. He's six foot five. 
He's got that huge head, those big hands. A lot of people may know Sterling Hayden, especially film fans love him because he was the dirty cop that Michael Corleone shoots in The Godfather. You know, but I knew Sterling Hayden from his Western days because my dad's a big Westerns fan. So growing up, you know, in a land where we had Turner Broadcasting Station, TBS, he ran a lot of Westerns like Johnny Guitar and some of that other stuff. And so I'd seen Sterling Hayden in things. So I didn't see this film until many, many years later. I know I've seen pieces of it here and there, but the first time I sat down and watched it start to finish was for this review with us. So this was mostly new to me, but I knew I'd seen it. But guys like Elisha Cook Jr., I mean, they don't make faces like that anymore and put them on television, at least. Now, I'll argue that Vince Edwards and Mark Ruffalo are somewhere or another related to each other. And that we need to get <laughs> we need to get Ancestry.com on that. But we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But no, it is a different era of Hollywood. The women, too. Look at the, the two females, Colleen Gray um, and Marie Windsor in here. They are a different level of Hollywood. It's like um, L.A. Confidential Hollywood. You know, that's the part of the world they're from. Maybe with the the women with casting women in movies, maybe that's more or less stayed uh, the same throughout all of uh, Hollywood, you know, for good or bad. But definitely with with guys, it's just like uh, I don't know when it happened. It had to be sometime in the seventies or eighties. Uh, they kind of they just stopped letting ugly looking guys <laughs> in movies, and it, hence yeah, they you know like and whenever they do, whenever you do see a guy whose face really stands out. Uh, I think of Michael Shannon uh, specifically. Like you look at him, he has that look mm-hmm. that, like Elijah Cook Jr. Like he has those kind of those psycho eyes. Like you know, and every time you see one of those guys pop up in a movie or uh, nowadays, they really do stand out. And it's like it is like a, a bit of a well. I mean, think, of, think about like Philip Seymour Hoffman was one of those actors for us. You know, he's a character actor, definitely had a look about him. You recognized him when you saw him. You know, Joe Pesci's another character actor that if he had come along in a different time, don't know if that would have worked. You know, I mean, it's, it's different. We started replacing Al Pacino and Sterling Hayden and all that with guys like Tom Cruise and Mark Hamill and, you know, the, the Harrison Ford, you know, who's a little rugged, but good looking. Dennis Quaid, you know, who's the knockoff Harrison Ford, I argue, and, and things like that. And that, I mean, that's come and gone. You're, you're right. The thing about this is that I don't have any problem. Part of it is it's so old that, that it's a, a time that I didn't live in or have connection to. So it's easy to put it out. But I'm also, you, when you look at faces like this, when you populate a cast with character actors, is you immediately ask me, the audience member, not to pay attention to the people, but pay attention to what they do and what their story is and their actions. You don't care how they look, and I shouldn't either. I'm supposed to pay attention to what they do. And that's a that's a gamble in a lot of ways, and it's probably why this movie didn't work in 1956, is there wasn't a bankable face on it that people could just relate to. I mean, I'm sure Sterling Hayden had his fans, but I doubt anybody lined up around the street to, you know, swoon at the man. <laughs> you know, so cuz it's like trying to swoon over the Marlboro man or something. So, you know. I think before we get any deeper Kurt, we should do a plot summary. So, why don't you do the honors here to kick us off on the Kubrick retrospective? Tell us what the killing is all about. Sure thing. Johnny Clay is planning to steal $2 million from a racetrack before running off with longtime girlfriend Faye and settling down for a life outside of crime. It's the whole one last job thing that seemingly every thief in a movie attempts, and I think pretty much none of them really succeed at. Uh, to pull off this daring heist, Johnny has enlisted several men to play a role in the scheme. Two work at the racetrack, George and Mike. 
they are in it for the woman, the women they love. Mike wants to care for his ailing wife, and George wants to give his wife, Sherry, all the things he think will please her. However, she is running around on him, two-timing, as they say, with Val, and together those two plan to rip off the money after the robbery. There are a lot of non-linear twists and turns, but the heist goes just as Johnny planned it, except for traffic makes him 15 minutes late to the meetup to split the cash, where Val bursts in, holding a shotgun on everyone, until George emerges from the back, and in a hail of gunfire, Val kills everyone else in the room, but is shot dead by George, who himself gets shot in the face and survives for a time. George makes his way back home and shoots his treacherous wife before he succumbs to his own injuries and and tries to take a parrot down with him. (laughs) Johnny sees the wounded George step out of the meeting place and decides to stuff the money in a hastily bought suitcase so he and Faye can fly away together. Johnny is unable to take the large bag onto the plane when it topples off the luggage rack and the money blows all over the runway. Johnny does not resist the police who catch out to him before he and Faye can leave and they draw guns on him as the credits roll. Wow, you know, when you lay that out, it doesn't sound all that entertaining. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You write it out about like that. It doesn't really sound that engaging. It actually sounds like the way it would probably go down in real life. And th- maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's the point. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of, and then scene. You know, I mean, it, it look, this is about the, the veteran criminal who's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do one last job. Like you talked about, you know, this is one last thing, but he's serious about it. Like this is it for him. You know, he's ready to go to the point that he's like walking away from every bit of heat coming around the corner. Right. Uh, I mean, he's, he's ready to blow until it's finally too late. And the fact that what gets him is crappy service at an airline, I think is funny, even in 2017. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you're jumping ahead, but it, it is uh, amazing how tense this movie is overall in this really gritty noir crime film. And yet it ends uh, the same way like a Three Stooges movie or a Marx Brothers movie would end. It's, 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 it's like Kubrick. And, uh, but it's good that, like, as we see in Doctor Strange Love, Kubrick knows how to handle uh, comedy like that. But it is, like, no matter how many times I see this movie, it is comes off as bizarre. It works, but it is bizarre how this movie ends. It really is. And so, like we say, we, we we get into this, and they waste no time getting us right into the mood for this. That bombastic music, I mean, that caught me immediately. I thought, well, that, talk about something from a bygone era. You just don't get... You, James Bond does that, because that's the Bond theme, right? But... We don't see heist movies that open up with that big ba-da, ba-da, you know, kind of thing again. And But that was what the, the you know, studio wanted, and it's what audiences expected, right? And what's funny to me is that Tarantino said in many interviews that, like, Reservoir Dogs, in a lot of ways, comes from the killing. It's like a son of the killing. And I would have never put that together without him saying that. But having now rewatched this recently and seen Reservoir Dogs again recently, I'm like, holy cow – Tarantino should be sued because he just ripped some of this stuff off. Uh, But I mean, really, that's the fun thing about this movie is that when you watch it and and if you hear us talk about it, you're like, man, it sound all that great. But if you watch it, what you'll, you'll catch yourself doing, I think is what I did the whole time. uh, Kurt, I just sat there going like, that's like that thing in heat. That's like that time in thief that oceans 11 stole that. No, not the rat pack one, the Clooney one. And you know, like back and forth, I was, connecting this movie to so many other heist and, you know, uh, noir films that I'd seen. 
Oh yeah, that's like I'm saying with with Kubrick being the most influential director. Like, you know, like 2001, like plot wise, I mean, almost nothing happens in that movie. <laughs> yeah, 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 the computer kills them all. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, you know? that's about it. And yeah, yeah when you watch any other movie set in space, like mm. pretty much all of gra- the movie Gravity, you can't help but think of of 2001, and it's like that with a lot of. Uh, Kubrick's movies, even even if they are sparse, you can't help but 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 think of them after they're after they're over. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has fingerprints that land in a lot of other places, which is kind of neat because this is a criminal film, right? But let's just talk about the characters and kind of run down them. I mean, Sterling Hayden is such a a presence on screen one because he's so much bigger than everybody, but he's got a great voice too and a great look. Like he looks like he's talking out of the side of his face sometimes, but he's really not. He's got full command of the pipes the whole time. And I believe he could kick your ass in a fight, like not just because he's big. Like if he ever got his mitts on you, you'd be in trouble because this dude... Looks like he knows how to handle himself in any situation. And the funny thing is, is we never really get to see him do anything terribly physical, not even in the heist. Yeah, yeah, not much. I think he, I don't even think he fires that gun. I think he, he punches a cop, I mean, a guard on the way out. But uh, yeah, he, knock, he, he is, knocks a guy out. That's all he does. So. Oh, yeah. And, and for sure, Sterling Hayden, like, like, I, like we're saying, he's one of those guys that just don't make guys like that anymore. And he is. He is definitely one of my uh, favorite uh, character actors. You know, a lot of people will jump to The Godfather, but uh, the two movies I jump to is Doctor Strangelove, which we will cover in depth. He gives one of the best, most bizarre performances in any movie <laughs> in that film. And a film uh, I don't think enough people have seen is uh, a Robert Altman film from 1973, I think, called The Long Goodbye. Uh, and uh, Sterling Hayden plays, I can't remember what the character is. I think he's like a, a reclusive writer or or something, but it's interesting. In every other movie Sterling Hayden is in, he plays like a slow-talking kind of simple, not dumb, but like a simple, very simple, plain-speaking kind of guy, slow, like a slow Eastwood kind of character. And yet, in in The Long Goodbye, if you've ever seen an interview with Sterling Hayden, it's on the DVD of The Killing. You can find it on YouTube. The actual guy Sterling Hayden was the total opposite of his characters. He was very verbose. He talked. Yeah. He's got to talk a mile a minute. Uh, a great storyteller, very affable and and funny. And in that movie, The Long Goodbye, he's playing that. So to see him in that compared to The Killing, you see that he really like you know had of uh, he had a lot of uh, range that not enough people took advantage of aside from from Robert Altman. But he is very good in this movie as a very simple. Uh, expert thief kind of guy. Well, I mean, just imagine for a minute, you know, one of the big roles he turned down later in his life, he was supposed to be Quint in Jaws. And can you imagine that? I mean, Robert Shaw kills in that role completely, but I can sit here and think like, man, Sterling Hayden would have been awesome as Quint. Like I, I would have loved to have seen that. Oh yeah. I'd see him as, I'd love to see him as Quint. I'd love to see, I, I think he would have been awesome as Ahab if they did. Yeah. Like he, 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 at the time he should, they should have cast him instead of Gregory Peck as, uh, as Captain Ahab in the Moby Dick movie. They're both kind of tall, lanky guys. Peck's got yeah. a better, better delivery, I think. But maybe we, do, maybe we'll do Moby Dick one day. We can have that argument uh, because I'll tell you right now who they shouldn't have was Patrick Stewart. But that's another day. So <laughs> on Donnie U, as they say. 
But no, I like our introduction to these characters, though. You know, we, we get the whole voiceover noir thing and we get the passing of the address. And, you know, we meet Elisha Cook Jr., who's at the window, working the window. And I immediately I thought, ooh, House on Haunted Hill, uh, because I, I love the original House on Haunted Hill. The remake is, eh, you know, whatever. Allie Larder's cute, but everything else in that's worthless. But the original one, the movie starts with him before you get Vincent Price and it's just his like disembodied head talking to you <laughs> and it's so off-putting and I swear I've seen this guy in things and when I you know I looked him up after the film I'm like holy smokes I've seen this dude in all kinds of television and you know especially things he did that were on in syndication when I was growing up. I mean, Elisha Cook Jr. was in so many different kinds of movies, but he's been in a lot of noir films too. He was in the Maltese Falcon. He was in the, the Big Sleep and he was in Shane, which is one of my favorite westerns ever. And he was in Rosemary's Baby as the weird old, you know, neighbor. I'm like, this guy is perfect for this role. And I, I totally love him in this and, how he is so the put upon husband here and his gold digger wife. I mean, it, it is so weird to put them together, but it makes total sense that she would be all about the money and he's all about trying to keep that money happy. Oh yeah. The, the pairing of, of these two of Marie Windsor and Elijah Cook Jr. Like, uh, like whatever, like it's impossible that they would ever get together in real life, but I love the visual of the two of them. And she, she, she towers over him uh, because she's just that tall. He's just that mm-hmm. short. Uh, and they, they have, I love their, 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 their scenes together, but this, this guy, Elijah Cook Jr. Like, like you keep saying, he has one of those faces, like one look at him. And even though he is a guy sitting behind a counter, you can just tell like he is a psychopath. Like this, this, like his last scene in the movie, like that's the real guy. Like you can see that's the guy behind the with crazy eyes. He's got those Peter Laurie bug eyes and he has a voice like Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. Like they didn't do serial killer movies really back in the day but if this was like 1995 he'd be the guy you get to play you know john doe and seven well it's it's like when robin williams has tried to play serial killers in his career you know final cut and insomnia and things like that it's sort of that same like you look at him you're like there's something just not right about this and then you realize what it is once they turn the monster on you know i I, i'm with you i mean i i liked his look and that he was just like he was just that hair's length from being off the the edge you know and what's funny to me and you know i said it at the beginning one of the things to look at in kubrick films is how do the women come off you know, you have complete opposites here in Faye and sherry Faye says something to herself about not being very pretty and not very smart and i'm just like going oh we got to get you some counseling you need to get these losers out of your life Faye, because you know, one she's the most gorgeous thing in the film so i'm like what a-hole father did you come from that beat you up like that? And I said, well, it would have to be one that would drive you to the arms of a criminal like Sterling Hayden, right? Well, that's the only way that would work. Oh, yeah. It's like, who knows how the hell these two uh, got together, but it looks, from the looks of it, it looks like they've been together since before he went to prison. Yeah. And it's definitely like, whatever that relationship is, like, it's... even if it did continue after this movie, it's not going anywhere good. No. And I mean, Sherry and George, again, are complete opposites. Sherry's this like flapper girl from uh, the great Gatsby or something is what I felt like. I felt like I was watching that, you know, I, I totally got that, that role off of her. And the fact that she's stepping out on uh, old George with uh, Val, I mean, could it be a more like on the nose name Val Valentino, right? I mean, this <laughs> guy, this guy, like I can, I could regrease my transmission with this guy's hair, man. 
Oh yeah, he definitely looks like he was. You know, you could be an extra in Greece. For sure. <laughs> well, maybe Greece too. Let's not be that. I mean, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, same thing. And like I said, am I not wrong? Val and Mark Ruffalo are somewhere. They have to know each other. Vince Edwards must be related to him in some way. Because they look so much alike to me, or at least maybe it's just the mannerisms. I don't know, but he really gave me like I got a Ruffalo thing off of him, and maybe that's just what Ruffalo does. But I don't know. I got more of a Treat Williams vibe. Uh, for- <laughs> Man, that's a that's a different uh, vibe. So uh, it's a low grade B action film, huh? Okay, so might as well. So. I mean, well, this guy wasn't a movie called Return to Horror High, so I mean, it's not like he became some great. But he worked for, you know, he worked really up until his death. So I mean, he he worked a long time. So uh, it wasn't like uh, he was unknown. But no, I I like the the you know if there is a love triangle we have this is is that Faye is nothing without Johnny. She feels like, and Johnny's like, I got to have enough to be able to take care of us so we can get away. And George is all about this because he's like, if I have all this money, then I can keep my woman happy. You know, it's that old adage, right? And I, I mean, I get it. You know, th- these guys are are going to um, rob this for really the same reason, for the women that they're going to take care of. They're even going to employ another guy who's trying to take care of his, you know, sick wife along the way. So it's it's all of these men that are these macho, bravado, you know, hard criminals. But really, they're doing what they're doing because of the love of, of a woman. And I found that fascinating. Oh yeah, the character of uh, Mike, uh, the, the the bartender. It's it, the, the I do that was one that one kind of flaw as far as like telling a story is they totally abandoned that mm. the idea that he was looking after his wife and after he's killed we don't find out what happened with because that that story of a guy uh, you know of a guy trying to taking part in a heist in order to help like we've seen guys try to pay off gambling debts or. Or something, but it's one thing. He specifically, he's, he's doing this for hospital bills. It's the Breaking Bad story, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so that's an underrated part of, of the uh, of, of the uh, the book and the, the screenplay. Yeah, it's it's something that that's not there. Now, did you read the book, the source material this is based on? I have not. Okay, I haven't either, but I understand it's pretty well adapted for the most part. That's something we should mention. All of these Kubrick films, they start out as books, and then they become his movies and maybe we talk a little bit along the way about how closely they um you resemble each other before i understand clean break from lionel white and this aren't that different from one another that it's a pretty good adaptation jim thompson did the writing or is credited as the writer on this but and he's a you know a crime fiction writer worked for a number of years but anybody who knows anything about kubrick films knows that his hands get on the screenplay right like that's not an unknown thing. We're not revealing great information by saying that, but it should be worth saying that Kubrick gets the typewriter out when he's making a movie. Oh, for sure. And his, well, and his first two movies, uh, I don't think he wrote fear and desire, but he, but the only movie he wrote hundred percent on his own was, um, killer's kiss. And I don't know. I'm not sure how much he influence he has on those screenplays. It's always with someone else. I'm, I'm guessing the other guy, uh, handles the, the meaty bits of character and dialogue. Cause you watch killer's kiss. There's like Kubrick isn't really much of a screenwriter, but uh, he definitely has a hand in all of this, 
all of his uh, all the stories. Yeah, I mean, it, it, his touches are all over. But again, this it, is it's a pretty simple story. I mean, we've told you everything about it. The the neatest thing about this is how it unfolds. Is we'll see a scene and then we'll see what happens before it and then we'll see it again. So it makes much more sense. Which you know that's the Tarantino thing, right? Is that you tell things out of order and then the audience has to figure out how to put them together. And I could see in 1956 if you did that to people, people would be pissed, right? Because they wouldn't know what the hell happened half the time. Oh yeah, that's you know that that's a Rashomon thing. That's a, like that's very much a European thing that you know absolutely Americans would would not be ready for. Is that sensibility a North American thing? Is it a Western thing, or is that a European thing? Like, where does that come from that we don't have the you know, the American sensibility of we don't have a lot of patience for nonlinear storytelling? I'm not sure, uh, but I, I definitely know from I can't remember where I read this, but someone summed it up how. There's like the different generations of filmmakers. Like there was the guys who invented it, and Kubrick is a part of the generation that was influenced by the guys who invented it. And Kubrick was apparently a huge movie buff. He would watch anything, and he definitely would be a huge fan of uh, foreign cinema. And that you know that's a big influence on on his work. Guys like uh, whether it's British guys or Italian guys. So he would definitely he, you know that's where uh, his sensibilities would would come from it makes a lot of sense then so i the thing that i like here too is this movie's 85 minutes long and it really wastes no time getting us right into the meat of this like we get the character motivations out of the way early on and then we get johnny going over the plans and i wrote down in my notes i was like this is my favorite scenes in the oceans 11 remake film are all the ones where they're planning the thing because it's it's mostly just voiceover of brad pitt and george clooney but i love watching like people put stuff together and it's all techie and they're, you know, they're figuring out what they're going to do. And you got this guy planting a bomb here in the sewer and you got this guy over here dealing blackjack and you know, the transformers are over here and there's a con brother over there. And you know, there's all that stuff. I love that kind of stuff. And I actually got so into this that you know, they're going to rip off a racetrack for $2 million. And I said, wait a minute, what would that be like today? And I looked it up. It would be almost 18 to $20 million worth today, which when I further looked it up said that would be a racetrack that would be failing. So, so they, you know, so they would actually be, you know, probably going after a lot more. And I got to thinking, I was like, man, you know, $2 million today, that that's still a lot of money. And I would be like, holy cow, somebody you know ripped off uh, something for $2 million. But that's like ripping off your local Build-A-Bear maybe or something, you know, at, at the end of the week or, or something. $18 million, $20 million, that's a heck of a heist, man. Like they, the job they're going to pull is by no means like just knocking over the local convenience store. And I think that's one of the things that in translation from, uh, you know, to modern audiences, you got to understand that was a lot of money in 1955. Oh, for sure. Uh, and that is something about this movie. I don't know if uh, I haven't seen a lot of uh, crime films from, you know, before this time. So I don't know how many heist films there have been, but I definitely know that was, uh, it is unique that they're ripping off a, uh, a sporting event, supposed to a bank mm-hmm. or, uh, or a casino. No, I, I do think that's kind of neat. And uh, the part of the thing that I liked about this was, I took the reason that they were they chose this place is that it does seem like it's out in the middle of nowhere off of a road they can get to. I mean, we're talking about 1955. Eisenhower's interstate system is not a thing yet. You know, the thing that that we take advantage of in America now and the fact that you know that you can really get between anything pretty fast in in this country, that great interstate system, that didn't exist back then. 
So if you had an establishment like this that was a little bit off the beaten path, and this one certainly looked like it was, getting away from it wouldn't take you that long. And I, I liked that element of it. And I think, I think that's why they chose this. They never really come out and say, from what I remember, as to why they chose this racetrack, do they? It's just, I think because George has the inn there, that's the, and Mike's working the bar, they, they've got people there. It's, it's convenient. Oh, yeah. And definitely, you know, it's, uh, it is pretty low tech. I mean, aside from the cars, it's, uh, it's about as complex as like a, as something you would see in a, in a Western. Like basically, you know, all it involves is, uh, throwing a bag like I, I, like there's no security cameras there's no uh, I don't even think there was an alarm uh, all they got are phones yeah uh, there, yeah it is it is very low tech compared to you know like today you would need you know at least three different characters to play you know the hacker guy uh, <laughs> at the computer just to trigger the alarms or so forth oh right I mean well look even in 1985 or 86 Whenever Beverly Hills Cop 2 came out, there's part of that movie where they rip off a racetrack. And I remember that distinctly. And I was thinking about that watching this. And I'm like, man, you had, you know, Brigitte Nielsen standing over there in high heels and a 44 Magnum going, 15 seconds. Goodbye, Mr. Christ, or whatever the, you know, Dean Stockwell's name was where she blew him away. And I mean, really, spoiler alert. But I mean, really, I, I thought, man, there's so many films that have borrowed from this. Like all, but the one that thing that this one has in its favor is that they don't have to worry about alarms or the GPS going off or some idiot with an iPhone over to the side. You know, and and what I love is how the patrons react once they and the other people once they realize they're getting robbed. Like they don't even have a chance to pull guns. These guys are on them so fast and put them all down so quick that there's no, you know, there's no muss with any of that. But in the same light, they still have some of those same Ocean's Eleven kind of noir things going on. I mean, Mike and this other guy stage a fight at the bar, right? To have security go over there so that he can sneak in the back and, you know, start the robbery. Oh, yeah. I got to talk about this guy. I, can't remember, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Cola uh, Quariani. Quariani, yeah. Uh, he was a wrestler from what he was. Nick the Wrestler was what he was known as. Oh, yeah. And he's he's awesome in this. I was yeah. stunned to look him up to find out this is the only film he ever did. And it's like if he was around in like uh, maybe 10 years later or or something around today, he'd be the go-to guy for like uh, the, a tough guy, you know, hulking actor. Like he's good in this movie and physically he's, he's pretty crazy. He actually would have been perfect casting uh, as the character of the Kingpin in a, in a Daredevil movie. With the yeah. Kingpin. Even the European accent, like the character didn't exist at the time, but he would have been great for that. And I think of him when I look at him, especially when he gets his shirt ripped off and he's in the middle of the of the brawling, he looks to me like a like an older uh, Dave Batista. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got really well, good. Yeah, he's Dave without all the without all the uh, enhancements, shall we say? But he's he's an old school tough man. You know, he's you know George the Animal Steel just recently passed away as we're recording this podcast in 2017. He looks like that guy, and that's his era. You know, the early parts of that Bruno San Martino and all all these guys that when professional wrestling was a, it was still a show and it was a it was a, a business, but it was not the cartoon that we all know it is now and the soap opera. It was about men who could grapple and literally could knock each other out just by squeezing your head until you couldn't breathe anymore. I mean, this guy, like if he ever you know got his hands on you, I feel like he would probably break you in half. Probably the only guy Sterling Hayden couldn't beat up in the cast would be this guy. And uh, I, no, I loved him too, though, man. I was with you. I'm like, he would be a great heavy 
in just about anything else if he had come along maybe 15 years later. Like, imagine all those dark 70s films like French Connection and all that kind of stuff. He would have been great as a heavy in all of those. And uh, I I liked the fact, though, that Kubrick had the idea of we need somebody that can stage a fight well. Let's just go get a professional wrestler. I mean, they know what they're doing. And from what I understand, that's exactly what they told Cola to do was like, just do whatever it is you do. And as they found out more about him, they're like, he likes to play chess and he's, you know, he's really intelligent. So they wrote all this other stuff for him to do because it showed a different side of him. And of course, when, you know, his big scene is the fight. Oh yeah. And he's, uh, he's definitely doing his, all his own, all his own stunts. And that, that particular scene, that's the most, it's like, uh, at least at that point in the movie, the most explosive, uh, violent scene and uh kubrick in in all of his movies this one included and uh uh killer's kiss the way he does he does violence in a way even when there's no blood he just does violence in a way that is just so like in, in intense and, and, and brutal like that when he when just with him uh maurice knocking you know guys into the wall the way they're slamming against the floor it just has so so much more uh it is just so. It is so visceral, even if it is kind of clownish. It is. It is clownish. But I say it's only clownish because we we have seen it done so many different ways and choreographed so well nowadays that back then, again, I try to put myself in the mindset of somebody who would have seen this in the day and like this is the kind of thing my dad would have seen, you know, at a theater, you know, on Saturday afternoon matinee or whatever, and you know, watching big burly men that look like they could pick up a house beat the crap out of each other was a scary thing to most, you know, normal Americans because they just didn't walk around with an itchy trigger finger waiting to do stuff like this. Also, were there clubs of men just playing chess and checkers in the fifties or something? I'm like, man, that, talk about something that like has gone. Like, I don't know. Is, is there any modern avatar toward that? I don't think so. You can barely keep an internet. Uh, cap. <laughs> Yeah, they don't even have those anymore, right? Now, if I don't have Wi-Fi in the Starbucks I'm hanging out in, I'm mad, right? (laughs) So, I mean, you know, I'm at my nephew's birthday party a couple weekends ago, and they promised free Wi-Fi at the uh, roller rink, and come to find out, it was there was no Wi-Fi to be had. So, (laughs) so, uh, but you know, they played uh, Cool in the Gang Celebration at least 38 times, so at least we had that. (laughs) So, but no, I mean, really, like those kind of things are the nice touches about this film, though that the scenes mean nothing. Like they, they kind of set up the wrestler you know that's the idea is we set up maurice by you know the the chess playing club or whatever but there's no other reason for that to exist other than just to show the atmosphere of it and to keep this this idea that there are things that men go and do that are different than what they do when they're at home right and that men need this place to do these things and i i mean what a different world right you know like there's all this backlash nowadays on guys that have like the man cave you know and that kind of thing and uh i don't know i just think about like how would that play today at all and i don't know that it would yeah and it is uh, a, g- a great side of that character that uh it'd be interesting like it makes me wonder exactly what his relationship with 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 Johnny was whether he was mm-hmm. another heist man or if he actually was like whether the character is a wrestler but it is like it's a and like and how he came to America is bizarre he's a very he is like a, a pretty fascinating uh, character 
Well, you remember the, the Ocean's Eleven with Clooney when he's supposed to be getting beat up by the guy with the tattooed head and it comes out that like they're <laughs> friends and all I kind of took it that it was just, you know, you need friends in low places, as Garth Brooks taught us many years ago. And so sometimes you just you call on that friend to be like, hey, man, you want to make a few bucks? And you just you make it work. And the fact that he's got all this set up, I mean, he sets up the bar fight. He sets up a, a guy to shoot a horse with a rifle and talk about like a way to set up a distraction at a horse race, gun down a horse. You know, and I mean, I've I've been to horse races. I've seen them. I've never seen one crash and wreck, but there's plenty of highlights of that out there. But can you imagine someone pulling out a thirty thirty and dropping, you know, the secretariat as it's coming around the corner? You know, I mean, that would uh, that would send the whole place into chaos. And what a better way to pull off a heist is when there's you know all hell breaking loose. Oh, absolutely. And, and this this guy uh, shooting the horse. Got to talk about this guy, uh, uh, Timothy Carey. Yeah, uh, one of the most unique, bizarre uh, character actors ever. Apparently Tarantino wanted to cast this guy as Joe in Reservoir Dogs, but he didn't because he heard he was so crazy. And ironically, Thorne's tyranny apparently was even crazier. <laughs> and he's a he's a great actor, this guy, Tim Carey. He's, he's, he's a way different character, and he, but he's uh, really good in, in Pounds of Glory. But he's so unusual, unusual in this movie with his, uh, with his squinty eyes, his half-asleep, speech patterns and he says pretty much every single line in the movie through grit teeth for for no apparent reason but he like he definitely stood out to me as the most memorable uh uh just like even never mind the character just guy in the movie i come out of the movie i just think god that 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 guy was bizarre. Oh, he was. And the, the scenes he has with James Edwards, the parking attendant, who's African-American and the only one in the film or whatever. And th- like the fact that like he befriends him for a little bit and then he just turns straight racist on him. I mean, it's like, wow. I'm like, that was a different time again. And you could see like how uncomfortable all that was. And watching this, I'm like, man, Kubrick's taking a lot of chances here because even in 1955, while that was something that would happen and people would talk about that, not that it, probably still doesn't happen today unfortunately but the people talk about it you didn't see that in a film like we didn't talk about those things right and the fact that he's putting that right out there along with the tramp wife and the you know woman who is gorgeous but thinks she's nobody without her man and the guy who's trying to please the the woman and the guy who's you know the wrestler who's just a hired thug basically and then the guy trying to work for his well you've got all these different pots in there and the thing about it is all these people are broken and damaged and it's like Kubrick is enjoying just turning this carousel of just screwed up people in front of you for your entertainment like look at your kaleidoscope you know it's all these broken trinkets and I don't know I I thought that the whole thing with Timothy Carey and James Edwards in the parking lot though was fantastic it's some of the best dialogue in the film oh yeah like Again, he is a fascinating character. The first time we see him is him, you know, with this uh, apparently fully automatic uh, shotgun. Uh, and one image that stands out is him right after he, he, he tests out the shotgun. He puts down, puts down, and he picks up a puppy. And you're seeing this this guy who's apparently some kind of you know a war veteran psycho sharpshooter, but yet holding this uh, this, this little puppy. Yeah. It, it is similar to 
you know, the guy who's a giant bruiser and yet, you know, he spends his free time playing chess. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, and this is what happens. You know, Johnny's had his moment with, with uh, Marvin, who's another one of the, the guys going along with it. And I love, too, like, Johnny hides the gun in a guitar case and then decides, no, that ain't going to work, and he throws it in a flower box and then puts it at a bus station for, for you know, his shooter to come get. And I thought, man, this is awesome because it, now you're alluding to things that I know I've seen, Desperado and all you know, all the Robert Rodriguez, and then T2, exactly. I was like, ah, Cameron saw this too, clearly. So, <laughs> uh, but, yes, but, you know, I love that, though. That's, that's the part of it. And the thing is, is you have a different guy come and get the gun who's not even doing the shooting. You know, so it's, I mean, it's such an elaborate plan to make it work, but, uh, it's, it's fantastic. And I love the fight too. It, the, the wrestling in it is great. It looks like old school, what I would call black and white wrestling. You know, you, the way these guys are throwing each other around. Oh yeah. Like, and it's, it's definitely real, realistic. That's kind of the word I was searching for with the violence and Kuruk movies. And definitely like when they have to get this, like, Seven guys to grab a hold of him just to pull him away. That definitely feels uh, real. Like that guy was. You need seven or eight guys just to to tell this guy to stop. You need a lot of guys. Oh, absolutely. You'd have to have a bunch of dudes to to pull that monster of a human off of everybody. I mean, he could probably throw six or seven with him. But we get the uh, we get the everything going down, and I, I love. But nobody notices the guy with the rifle in the parking lot. You know, like at all. And that that's just doesn't stand out. But, you know, he doesn't get away. Like for a minute, I thought he was going to get away. But he shoots the I love the name of the horse, Red Lightning. He shoots the horse, but he gets a flat tire and that gets him shot dead. And so we start taking off, you know, thugs that aren't going to make it to the end of the movie, because that happens in every big heist movie. Right. Like somebody gets shot and taken out like we lose people along the way. Oh yeah, that's definitely that's definitely uh, something. I mean, you know, you know. Pre- President David Palmer got shot robbing that bank in Heat, you know, and then right. Val Kilmer gets shot, and eventually Tom Sosmore gets blown away. So I mean, yeah, you start losing guys as they go through. And how about that mask that Johnny puts on? You think uh, Chris Nolan ripped that off? Because I think he totally ripped it off. For sure, the 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 thief wearing wearing the clown mask, which uh, is strangely. Well, lip synced, I found. What, yeah. What, like you look at the mask holding up, it looks like a very crude mask. And yet for some reason, it's tight enough on his face that it's like uh, unintentionally good uh, prosthetic work. Uh, and it, it definitely it adds a level of, of creepiness to it because he could have usually used a black ski mask. But the fact that it's like a, a you know, using a, a, a clown in a threatening manner, I mean, you know, that, that's the Joker all over. Right, right. And I mean, you know, Johnny does all the robbery from gunpoint. He knocks that one cop out and he throws the duffel bag to another police officer who's faking having radio problems out the gate because, yeah, he thought of that, too. He knows that oh, that's going to be the ways that the cop, essentially the dirty cop, takes off with the money to meet them all at the drop point later on, which I thought, man, this guy really has thought of everything except for traffic. And that's what I want to get to here is the end of this film, Kurt, because it blows me away that all of this goes to hell because he gets stuck at a couple red lights. Because that's exactly what happens. If he had shown up on time, Johnny could have totally diffused that entire situation. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. Like I said, like the, you know, the first act and second act of this movie are very... They're not predictable, but they are of the genre. It feels like a crime movie. Then all of a sudden, yeah, little things start happening that are just 
just peculiar. Like, yeah, just like a simple thing of like, uh, you know, he can only find one. He can only get a hold of one suitcase or just because of the, the traffic in L.A. Or, or whatever city that was that uh, he, he he could have easily walked in with that shotgun himself and handled the whole situation. But you know. no, no. I mean, he's got his little you know hut that he's hanging out in with his ex-friend or his old friend or whatever. And he, like you say, he goes through all these different things. He's going to put the money in. He finally decides on that suitcase and he shows up. But after he shows up, you know, you've got Val there with his thug friend. You know, looking for Johnny, who doesn't show up, and then George comes out and blows away the guy that's you know two timing with his wife, right? And what what I was you know I had to rewind it a couple of times too because it's not entirely clear how this works, but it looks like Val gets off a, a round out of that shotgun, and everybody's in such close proximity that it kills everybody else except George, who just gets like a few in the a few pellets in the face. Oh yeah, like this movie, The Killing, is not a movie about uh, action or, or violence, really. But I think one of the most memorable scenes in the movie is this whole scene uh, with the shotgun pointing at everybody. John uh, George comes out, dude comes out blasting, and yeah, the guy apparently I, I don't know how shotguns work, but that is a really wide. Uh, <laughs> they don't they don't shoot backwards. It's not the Matrix. I can tell you that. And at that close range, they'd actually would all stay clumped more likely. It's when you get further away that they spread. But yeah. I guess. Yeah. It's, it, you know what? That's the funny thing. We haven't even talked about it. This movie's called The Killing, and this is a terrible title for this. <laughs> so why not just call it Clean Break? Holy cow. This is an awful, awful title for this film. It's got nothing to do with anything that happens. I, I suppose, but uh, you know, I get maybe you know this scene is definitely the the killing of the movie, and it is so shocking to see, and it definitely brings to mind the violence in in Tarantino movies, especially I, I think of Inglorious Bastards, where yeah. that movie will go from zero to two hundred miles an hour, and then back to zero in the blink of an eye, uh, and that's exactly what this happens. That exchange of gunfire is like three seconds, and five characters in this story are dead characters that some of them had some dramatic weight and all of a sudden boom uh they're all out they're right. all gone and that's yeah, it's amazing yeah you know george stumbles out of the room and johnny sees george stumbling out to his car and he's like i think it's about time for me to leave now and he just says well obviously that didn't go down very well darn traffic so he's gone now but not before we get to see george come back to sherry and i mean like Talk about Wrath of Khan, you know, for me, with my dying breath, I spit it at yeah. you, you know, and he tries to kill the damn bird. <laughs> this character, his whole life or this whole marriage with this woman has been a ticking time bomb. And when he finds out that his his wife not only was sleeping with another guy, but it was plotting to steal from him and kill him. Totally, you know, like, you know, when he's when he's stumbling out. He is stumbling with the with the, the mission. I'm going to go kill my wife now, and it's like again, like you take one look at this guy at the start of the movie, you can tell he's going to do something like that. And that scene uh, at their apartment, the way it's lit, so dark with the light underneath his face, like uh, that's Kubrick really knew how to let that guy's face because he looked crazy before when he's <laughs> when yeah. he's got bullets in his face and, and bleeding. He really uh, looks like like a kind of crazy that. You just don't see in movies now. Well, it's and it, it again conveys the fact that it's everything he's got left in him to have gotten up those stairs and pull that trigger on her one last time. But by God, he's going to do it because he is he's 
not going out without her. I robbed a racetrack for you, lady, and all you were going to do was rip me off with this guy? I don't think so. I mean, that's exactly what is coming out of him. And he, he shoots her dead. And she get, that's the thing is she gets it. Like, what film do you ever see the cheating wife, like, really ever get hers, right? Like, it only happens a few times, but that I can ever remember. And usually this guy gets suckered and, and kills himself, right? But not this one. No, he, he takes her out along with, uh, you know, her lover and, uh, then tries to kill their pet bird. So who probably died anyway later on because nobody's around to feed it because there's nobody in this city. So <laughs> cheap, cheap production. It happens. What's funny to me is that that's really the climax of the film. And then we get this coda that's all about uh, airline refusing to give a customer what they want, which is to let them take their huge bag on the plane with them. And they're like, they make them check a bag at an airport. I don't know if you've ever gone through airport bag issues and things, Kurt, I have, and it is not a fun day at the, at the at the zoo when that happens so i'm sitting there just laughing going i can't believe it's going to be the the jerk at the american airlines counter who will not let this plot go on and if it just hadn't been for that guy you know, refusing to change procedure then they would have gotten away with all this oh yeah like the finale uh it's it's like like i like i said it's like it's like from a different movie where like the movie really changes pace here. Like the movie is still like there's still a lot of tension of the the crime and the running from the cops, but that scene is such a, a weird awkward tension because Johnny was in such a hurry didn't have time to buy a proper suitcase for the money. He didn't think at all about this because probably because he saw everyone on his team is dead. He probably isn't thinking straight. And we get this bizarre exchange. The 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 dialogue in the movie is very uh, heightened. That noir kind of dialogue but this particular exchange of dialogue with the airline guy is probably the only normal sounding dialogue in the movie where johnny is he like we have a scene where is this thief is just arguing with this guy about wanting to check his bag in his carry-on as opposed to uh checking it into the into the cargo and this is how i know a movie has me is where like we're just it's just a guy talking to a guy at an airport and i am feeling so nervous because I don't necessarily know the movie is about to end, but I, I, I was more nervous and anxious about that suitcase than the scene where all the guys were killed. Absolutely. I mean, that's that builds the tension back up, and it's it's from a thing you don't expect, and that's what I think is, is neat about this is it's not the cops, and it's not the security, and it's not somebody with a gun at the racetrack taking matters into their own hands that really undoes this. It's just simple... No, that bag's too large and you're not going to put it on because that's what the rules say. And we're going to follow the rules as long as I'm working the desk, sir, at American Airlines. Now, how can I help you? You know, it's, it's, it's customer service that undoes this. And to me, that's kind of the novel part of this film is that it's just these little things that kind of undo all of it. There's a scene in the Pelican Brief, if you remember that movie, where Tony Goldwyn, who's been playing the president's like chief of staff or whatever and keeping all that plot up to go, realizes that the reason that any of the things that are happening is because of a frontline documentary on PBS. And he just sits there and looks at the screens like, effing PBS. And it's like the littlest things are what is unraveling all of this stuff. And I, th I had that same feeling here. And I think that's something Kubrick wanted to show in particular is that no matter how much planning this guy did or how smart he is or how 
veteran a criminal he is or whatever, it's not even the cops that are going to undo him. It's the fact that he didn't realize there was going to be a hang up at the airport. Is that one little thing he forgot to even think about being an issue. And who knows if it would have been an issue had he been able to split the cash up, but he wasn't. So he's in a bigger suitcase now. And all of a sudden that big windfall is what's going to get him. And the fact that it, it falls off of the darn, you know, luggage rack thing as they're driving it to the plane and just blows the money all over the place. And he's like, Oh, Oh no. And when they're walking out of the airport before they get stopped by the cops, what do you think he like, he's thinking he's going to go do next. Right. Cause that's $2 million he just walked away from and like seven dead people. Oh yeah. Like that, that image, that, first of all, that image, as comical as it is, that image of like $2 million swirling around in that little, uh, you know, vortex, that is a striking image. Makes me think of, of a similar image in The Dark Knight where the Joker burns in a giant pile of money. You just don't see that kind of, you, you never see that thing in real life. It's like, you know, it's like a fantasy image. But that, yeah, that, uh, the, the great bit of comedic acting on Sterling Hayden's part where his, his girlfriend is pretty much dragging him out because if he had a gun, he'd stick it in his mouth right there because he just committed the heist of the decade, like he can't, he probably can't even believe he's gotten away with it up to this point, but because he didn't think to go the extra mile and buy a Samsonite uh, <laughs> suitcase, the look on his face, he really is feeling the loss of every penny of that $2 million. Oh no, absolutely. And, yeah. And yeah, when they, they get outside and the taxis are gone, uh, the two detectives uh, come out looking for him. And she says, you got to run. And you watch it, you, any other movie at this point might go for another action beat. He goes for a run, he pulls out a gun, he goes for a shootout. But it's a great bit where she says, you got to run. He just takes the beat and says, what's the difference? And it's such a yeah. genius bit of delivery. Because the whole movie is, is that very heightened, noir-style guy saying stuff. You know, come on, clown, sing us a chorus from Pagliacci. You know what I call this? Yeah, see, acting, yeah. you know. Over, very over the top. Not that it's bad, but it's it's, it's definitely you know heightened, uh, not realistic. But that delivery Hayden has is so casual and defeated, and and so real. Uh, it's definitely uh, my favorite moment of the movie. Like I said, it's just so weird for this gritty noir movie to go out on this. The whole movie is tense and gritty, and there's guns and violence, and it has a total Marx Brothers ending. You do not that you do not see coming. Uh, if handled poorly, it could be absolutely laughable in the wrong way. Like literally, a puppy, a, a little poodle runs out, makes the baggage handler uh, jerk the wheel of the cart, and that's what you know uh, makes the money uh, spill everywhere. It's so silly, and apparently this was created for the film. I don't know what the ending of Clean Break was, but apparently they came up with that because they weren't satisfied with the ending. It was like, what's what will be an interesting thing? It's like, how about, well, he buys a crappy suitcase and loses all the money that way. Uh, and that's what they went with. And uh, I think it's an outstanding uh, ending. No, no, I, it's it's the perfect ending. And you've nailed it. The best thing it ends on is that great line. What's the difference? Just that <laughs> defeated, like, it's sort of, it's kind of funny, but it's also just like pathetic. It's like, this guy's like, who cares? You know, and I think you've nailed it. If she wasn't standing there, you know, he would have just jumped off the nearest train track. 
you know, cause there's nothing left, you know, for him. He's done, you know, at this point. And boy, what a, what a tangled web, but uh, it, it ended all at the airport there. So, well, let's see what we finally uh, think of the killing besides its horrible title here, Kurt. It's fi- time for final thoughts and popcorn ratings. If you're new to the show, folks, we rate everything on a popcorn size scale. Extra large means really great. Small means not so much. So what are your uh, ratings for the killing by Stanley Kubrick? Well, the killing, uh, is a very uh, simple movie in the end, uh, certainly compared to Kubrick's uh, later work. Uh, it's probably his easiest movie to watch. It's like it's his, it's not extremely un, it's not very unpleasant like his his work <laughs> would be. It's not a very uh, deep movie about the you know, psychology or philosophy like other his, his films might be. Uh, it's a nice and short and simple story about a bunch of guys trying to rob a racetrack that's that's about it with a, like everything about the movie is very i can't think of a term other than by the numbers as far as like a a, a, a heist movie goes but it's it's it might be by the numbers it's very good but it is like a heist movie but then it's that final act where it is uh where it takes a turn that you just don't see coming and you I don't think like i said like if handled poorly you there's no way you could end oceans 11 with and at the very last second, they accidentally blow up the van with all the money and, or something like that. Like, you just can't like, like Kubrick, you know, I can't believe he, he ended uh, such a gritty movie on such a silly note and made it work and made it genuinely funny. And where you, where you do, you, and you feel so bad for him. Like you, you feel the emotion that he's feeling, you know, that what's the difference thing. And it's got this great cast of those character actors. I wish he did work with, more of those guys again. He worked with Sterling Hayden again. And he worked with Joe Turkle again to great effect uh, a few times. Uh, and it's got that nice old fashioned uh, wind done poorly. It might come off as dated, but that, you know, that heightened noir sensibility is, is very well done. And what's important is that, you know, it is a very good movie. And this is the movie that really paved the way for Kubrick to do his thing. And after Paths of Glory, it's like, you know, right there. He's in the history books with that movie. Uh, but this absolutely is an excellent film. It is one of the best heist films, much like with 2001 influencing every science fiction after this de- movie definitely influenced every heist movie. Uh, and I think it's amazing and like gets an extra large popcorn for me. You know, I'll say this uh, about this film. It's, it's not that grand. The scope isn't that great. Um, but I do think it's one of those kind of like the way um, a film like Psycho is sort of horror homework or the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like you need to have seen the first of things or maybe even like the original Halloween or Friday the 13th or whatever. Like those films just mark a spot in a genre that you need to know. And if you like heist films, if you like films like Thief and Collateral and Heat and, you know, even like, uh, uh, Ocean's Eleven and that kind of stuff, you like, or the Italian job or any of those kind of films, you know, Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels, all that stuff. I, I think you owe it to yourself to see the killing because again, you'll see so much stuff that got used again. If you're a Tarantino crime film fan, you'll, you'll eat it up because it's perfect, you know, for, for you, because it, he'll, he'll tell you, you know, he pulled it straight out of there and you can see it. It's, it makes a ton of sense. Um, as far as just raw entertainment value, the fact that it's 85 minutes gets it a more of a pass than anything. It's pretty easy to go down. Like there's not, you know, a ton there. I'm going to tell you now, you're probably going to be like me and you watch the female characters in this and you just want to hit yourself in the head, you know, cause it's like the one that's 
too pretty to not be smart enough to realize, you know, she's abusing herself. And then the one that's a complete, uh, you know, hoe on the side and probably deserved to be shot in the end. I shouldn't have said that. That was awful. But she, I mean, she was a two time and, you know, loser, right? So, I mean, she just was surrounded with them. The women in this film are not very, you know, engaging or interesting, but the men are. And particularly Elisha Wood Jr. and Sterling Hayden. I really think both of them are fantastic in this. And it's definitely worth a look for that. I can't give it full extra large popcorn though, because I don't think it's that great, but I do think it's good. And so I'll give it a large popcorn. It's barely on that large for me, but it's just enough, probably because that ending is so absurd. And, but it's perfect, you know, for, for it. It's like, it's so absurd because it's so normal, you know, and, and that's what I like about it more. So it definitely one that I'm glad I watched and I'll, I'll certainly add it to my collection and watch it again. So folks, if you haven't seen the killing, you can rent it for two bucks on Amazon. I mean, waste no time. It's on prime. Go, go check it out. Um, definitely something to, to look at. So we come back next time, man. We're going to, we're going to go to war, uh, with Kirk Douglas, Paths of Glory. Um, I'm really excited to talk about that film. I certainly have a lot of thoughts about it. I know you do too. We've talked about it offline, but we will be back soon to talk about that one in our Stanley Kubrick retrospective as we continue that throughout the year. Of course, folks, you can find all of our episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Catch up with us on social media, and now you can download us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Google Play Store. So uh, check us out there. Leave us a review on those places. It helps other people find the show. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.